The reading this morning is from Acts uh, 17, verses 1 to 9, and is on page uh, 113 of the Church Bible. When they had passed through Amphipolis and Apollonia, they came to Thessalonica, where there was a Jewish synagogue. As his custom was, Paul went into the synagogue, and on three Sabbath days he reasoned with them from the Scriptures, explaining and proving that the Christ had to suffer and rise from the dead. This Jesus I am proclaiming to you is the Christ, he said. Some of the Jews were persuaded and joined Paul and Silas, as did a large number of God-fearing Greeks and not a few prominent women. But the Jews were jealous, so they rounded up some bad characters from the marketplace, formed a mob and started a riot in the city. They rushed to Jason's house in search of Paul and Silas in order to bring them out to the crowd. But when they did not find them, they dragged Jason and some other brothers before the city officials, shouting, These men have caused trouble all over the world, have come now... Sorry, read that bit again. These men who have caused trouble all over the world have now come here, and Jason has welcomed them into his house. They are all defying Caesar's decree, saying that there is another king, one called Jesus... When they heard this, the crowd and the city officials were thrown into turmoil. Then they put Jason and the others on bail and let them go. One of the first books I um, read as a Christian uh, was by C.S. Lewis. I was converted at age 22 on the back of university and a friend lent me this book. And there's one story in it that I don't think will ever leave me. It's a true story, wrote a lot of fiction, obviously C.S. Lewis. But this one was a factual book. And he writes this story about a friend of his. And this friend was actually in hospital. And he was dying of a terminal illness, a non-Christian friend. And C.S. Lewis, day after day, goes and sits at the bedside of his friend. And he pleads with his friend. You can imagine him pleading with his friend that he would trust Christ. Pleading with his friend that he would take Jesus seriously. And day after day after day this happened. And no response. And then one day the friend turns back to C.S. Lewis and says, you know what, I'd love to believe the things that you're talking about. I'd love to have that, that hope that you seem to have, that joy that is untouched by the circumstances of this world. I'd love to have that thing that you've got. He says, you know what, I just can't believe it. And here's why. Because if that were true, what you were talking to me about, if there really is a heaven, after this world, if there really is a hell, if Jesus really died on a cross and is the difference between those two realities, then he said, I would see Christians everywhere be prepared to crawl the length and breadth of Britain on broken glass to tell people. And he says, you know what? I just don't see it. I just don't see it. And that story has stayed with me to this day. I try to think why that story stayed with me. And I think it stayed with me for this reason. Because I've got to ask that question for myself today. And I think we've got to ask that question for ourselves today as a community of believers. I wonder what that friend would see in me. I wonder what he'd see in us today. Would he see a group of people who say, I believe in Jesus and I'm willing I'm willing to crawl the length and breadth of Britain on broken glass if needs must to tell people because the gospel matters that much. I wonder what he'd see. I wonder what our friends see. 
I wonder what the community of Long Crendon sees in us as a group of believers sat here this morning. I wonder. Because it's my prayer this morning that as we look at Acts chapter 17 together, as we follow Paul with Silas and Timothy and Luke on his gospel journey, as he takes the gospel, Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, ends of the earth, And as we see Paul move from Philippi to Thessalonica and we see his passion and his heart for the gospel, I wonder whether we too this morning would be challenged to be the same. That we'd be relentless in the word on the screen. We'd be relentless as we seek to take the good news of Jesus to those that we live and work and play alongside. That's my prayer for this morning. And I think there's three challenges or there's three that we're going to have a look at this morning, that come to us from this passage. Here's the first one. Will we be a people that leave? Will we be a people that leave our sometimes comfortable Christian life to go and share the good news of Jesus with others? We're going to come to Acts 17 in a minute, but I want to look briefly at Acts chapter 16, because it's been a busy old patch for Paul and friends. There's been a lot going on in Philippi. Acts 16 verse 14, a few highlights for you here. Lydia, the first convert in Philippi. Through the preaching of Paul, the Lord opens her heart to respond to the message. Lydia is converted. Good things are happening in Philippi. But there's also opposition to the gospel. You see, Paul and Silas, they confront this slave girl, this fortune-telling slave girl in verse 16 and 17. And the people of the town don't like it. And they get thrown into prison. Paul and Silas spend the night in prison. Do you see what they do? When they have the opportunity to leave, they're there singing hymns all night. And by the end of that night, the jailer and his whole family are converted. What a couple of days it's been for Paul. I wonder how you'd react after a couple of days like that, giving yourself over to the cause, on the front line all the time, seeking to tell, seeking to share, opposition coming your way, relentless as you try and bring the gospel to people. I wonder how you react on the back of that. Because if that was me after a night in jail, I'd be a little pat on the back, well, well done, good shift, lad. Good couple of days, feet up. Sky Sports News. Lord of the Rings trilogy. I'd just have a little relax because I've earned it, haven't I? I've earned it. But look how Paul reacts in Acts chapter 16, verse 40. The last verse before we link it to our journey to Thessalonica. After Paul and Silas came out of prison, they went to Lydia's house where they met with the brothers and encouraged them. Then they left. First thing they do, without consideration for their own well-being, after a night in stocks in prison, straight to Lydia's house. Remember, first convert in Philippi, the believers are already gathering together in Lydia's house, and Paul's straight there to encourage, to invest, to love, to care for these people. And after he's done that, what does he do? He's gone. Then they left. You could stamp those three words over the whole book of Acts because that's the story. In the power of the Spirit, the apostles taking the gospel out from town to town to town to town. They were relentless in their mission of seeing the gospel go out. And when you look down to Acts 17 verse 1, you'll realise if you know your geography, I obviously have to look this up because I don't know these places at all, but that's a hundred mile journey on foot. From Philippi, through Amphipolis, through Apollonia, before arriving in Thessalonica, 100 miles. Paul has probably walked, maybe found a donkey, who knows, but he's gone a long way. He's gone a long way after a hard week. Why? 
to do exactly the same thing that put him in prison in Thessalonica. Relentless for the cause of the gospel. I don't know whether you've come across this guy at all. You probably can't even see him. It's George Whitfield. And this is his biography. And it looks like a terrible read, doesn't it? You see a book like that. It's a nightmare front cover. But it's brilliant. Brilliant book. Here's George Whitfield. And he's an 18th century preacher, so he's around a long time ago. If you read this book, and if you do get a chance to read it, you end up being tired just by the end of reading it. Because this guy spent everything for the sake of the gospel. He was converted age 19. And for the next 50 years of his life, he travelled the whole of the United States on horseback going from town to town. And he went twice around the whole of Britain. He preached on average three times a day for 50 years of his life. And he faced opposition all along the way. He had dead animals thrown at him. He had a lad wee on him from a tree when he was preaching open air to the coal miners. He faced all sorts of opposition. Every single town he went into, he saw people come to know Christ, but there was opposition and relentlessly went on and on and on. And there's a wonderful little section to the end of this book where his good friend Richard Smith is with him. And he's coming to the end of his life and he's exhausted. And his friend Richard Smith says to him, Oh George, I wish you had not preached so frequently because surely it will be the end for you. And George Whitfield turns round to Rich and says, My dear friend Richard, I would rather wear out for the gospel than rust out. What a wonderful thing to say. I'd rather wear out for the gospel than rust out. And of course there's a balance in here somewhere, right? I'm not saying you expend to the point you become ineffective for Jesus in this world, but you know what, as I look at my own heart and life, and I wonder as you look at yours, I think the risk for us as a church in the UK is not that we wear out from doing evangelism, it's that we rust out from being stagnant. That we just stay where we are in our own comfortable little worlds and we don't get out there where we need to be for Jesus. Oh, to be a people who wear out for the gospel and not rust out. And of course, for me and you, hey, this is going to be different to how it was for Paul and the roaming of evangelist George Whitfield, right? Because it's different. This was a unique time in the church. The gospel was breaching new ground. It had never arrived in Philippi before Paul got there. It had never arrived in Thessalonica before Paul got there. This was the gospel going out for the very first time. Breaching new ground. For me and you, it's different, right? We're now Christians scattered amongst this world. The challenge isn't for me and you to pack our bags and walk 100 miles down to Portsmouth, find someone who doesn't know Jesus and tell them about him. They're on our doorstep, right? Will we lean over our fence to our next door neighbour and try and tell them about Jesus? The colleague that we sat opposite at work every day of the week and we look at him and we talk about football and life and so many things. But do we talk about Jesus with it? These people all around us You see, when I talk about the challenge to leave, let's be people that leave. I'm not talking geographically like it was for Paul or like it was for George Whitfield. Will we leave what is sometimes a very comfortable Christian existence here in the UK? To put our neck on the line for the Lord Jesus and say, this is who I am. I believe in you, Jesus. I know what you've done for me. And I want others to know as well. Will we be a people who are relentless in that cause? The people that leave for the sake of the gospel. That's our first challenge this morning. Will you? Will you be a person that leaves here 
determined to make a difference for Jesus. And here's our second challenge. Let's be a people that speak. Not just a people that leave, but a people that speak because, hey, what does it actually look like? It's one thing to be in and amongst non-Christians, alongside people that don't know Jesus, and this is where we need to be, yeah? But let's be a people that speak as well. Let's have a look what Paul does in Acts 17, verse 2 and 3, because it's so simple what Paul does. There's nothing complicated really about this. It's ever so simple, yet it's ever so powerful. Look, Acts 17, 2 and 3. As his custom was, this is what Paul does, he went into the synagogue. And on three Sabbath days, he reasoned with them from the Scriptures, explaining and proving that the Christ had to suffer and rise from the dead. This Jesus I am proclaiming to you is the Christ. What does Paul do? He wanders into the synagogue with the scriptures, probably a scroll in his back pocket, and he simply opens it up and he tries to help the people understand who Jesus is. That's it. And do you see the language he uses down there in verse 2 and 3? He reasons with them. He discusses, he debates, he talks with the Bible open, he tries to persuade them who Jesus is. He explains to them, look at that language there, he explains to them who Jesus is. He proves that Jesus had to die, it wasn't a mistake, he had to go to the cross, he had to suffer for the sake of people's sins, he had to do it. And then the climax of his sermon there at the end of verse 3, this Jesus I'm proclaiming to you, he's the Christ, he's the king of the world. He's the one that the Jews have been waiting for. Here he is. Will you trust him? What does that look like for you today? In your world? In your work? In your school? In your college? What does it look like for you, in reality, with the person that you're sat next to in the office, every day of the week, what does it look like for you to reason with that person? To have the Bible open and reason and debate and talk gently and kindly and lovingly and discuss the person of Christ. What does that look like for you? What does it look like for you at college and at school? The friend that you sat next to in maths every single day of the week or every other day of the week. What does it actually look like in practice to explain to them simply and clearly who Jesus is and why he matters so much? What does it look like to head back home maybe? to family and friends that don't know Jesus and say, Jesus had to die for you. He had to suffer. This was God's plan because it was the only way to bring sinful people back into relationship with God. This Jesus I'm talking about is the Christ. What does that look like for you? It's not my job, I don't think, this morning to prescribe to you what that looks like for you as an individual because it will be different for every single one of you and it will be different with every friend you meet, right? You look at Paul on his journey. He dealt differently with the people in Thessalonica to the philosophers in Athens. It was a different starting point with the Jews, the Gentiles, the Greek debaters, the intellect. It was different starting points all the time. You've got different friends, different backgrounds, different interests. Starting points are different, but one thing remains constant, friends, all the time. You see it throughout the book of Acts. Paul, Peter, they'll get the Bible open, the Scriptures open, they'll let God's Word speak, because this is where the power lies. This is where it lies. Fact. If we're going to see 
thousands of people transformed for the sake of the gospel. It begins with me and you getting the word of God open with our friends. And not necessarily physically ripping the Bible open, but at least talking about the truths that are found within here, about the Jesus of the Bible with our friends. That we would be a people that reason with them. It's why in Ephesians 6 verse 17, Paul refers to God's word as the sword of the Spirit, right? The word of God. It is the sword of the Spirit. The one weapon the Spirit picks up in his hand as he seeks to sweep across this land and win people for God. It's the Word of God. And you see that through our Acts. Acts 2, the Spirit comes. It's called Acts because it's the Acts of the Apostles. It should be the Acts of the Spirit and the Acts of the Apostles. Because as the Spirit goes out, so the Apostles speak the Word of God. And as they do, lives are transformed. Flip back with me to Acts chapter 2 just quickly because I think you see this brilliantly in Acts chapter 2. Spirit comes in Acts chapter 2. We get that in verses 1 to 13. And then we get the first sermon, if you like, in the Bible from verse 14 onwards where Peter addresses the crowd. Spirit comes. Word is taught. And look what happens down in verse 37 and 38. When the people heard this, they were cut to the heart and said to Peter and the other apostles, Brothers, what shall we do? Peter replied, Repent, and be baptised, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness of your sins. When the Spirit works, and the Word of God is preached, then people are cut to the heart. People are convicted of their sin. They're convicted of their need of Christ. And they're be brought to that position say, what, what, what should I do? Answer, just trust Jesus. You don't do anything. Simply trust in what Christ has already done for you. Let me ask you a blunt question. You might think I'm pretty rude asking this because this is my first time stood up here. And I don't know a lot of you too well, but I'm going to ask it anyway. I'm not expecting an answer. When was the last time that you opened up the Bible with a non-Christian friend? That's a horrible question to ask, isn't it? Because I would hate to answer that question publicly. When was the last time you intentionally went to a non-Christian friend and tried to help them understand who Jesus was? If you're anything like me, it was too long ago. It was too long ago. Friends, as we understand who Christ is, let's be a people that leave our sometimes comfortable Christian existence and let's go to them and let's speak to them about the Lord Jesus Christ because nothing in life is more important than that. Think about that friend now. Put them in your head. Put their face in your head. Because it begins when we leave here. Will you take the gospel to those people who desperately need to hear it. Let's be a people that leave. Let's be a people that speak. And finally, back in Acts chapter 17, let's be a people that love. Look at the result in verse 4. Some of the Jews were persuaded. They were persuaded that Jesus is the Christ. And joined Paul and Silas, as did a large number of God-fearing Greeks and not a few prominent women. What happens when the Spirit works and when the Gospel is preached? People get saved. 
people from all backgrounds, all walks of life, Jews and Gentiles, men and women, people of all social standings, people will turn to Christ. They will. This isn't theory, it's reality. It's reality, friends. The same gospel that saved Lydia and Philippi, the same gospel that persuaded some of the Thessalonians, is the same gospel we've got access to today. It's the same gospel, if you're a believer, that has saved you. I'm stood here as a Christian today because God did a work in my heart, but also because my mate Gaz at university who I played football with loved me enough to grab hold of me and say, Wellesley, you need to understand who Jesus is. And he was relentless in it. He wasn't a dynamic, charismatic man. He, he wasn't that attractive or that good with his words. He wasn't a brilliant communicator. But he loved me. He loved the Lord Jesus. And he loved me enough to say, I'm going to put my neck on the line. And however many times Wellesley fobs me off, I'm going to keep telling him about Jesus. The amount of letters that I've still got from Gaz. The amount of books I've still got from Gaz. The amount of invites I've got to Christian events where the gospel will be preached. It's numerous. And 90% of them I say, Gaz, no thanks mate, not for me. But in the end, through the work of God's Spirit in my heart, I crumbled. Crumbled under the weight of the Spirit and under the weight of God's truth because my friend Gaz loved me enough to be relentless in his evangelism. Friends, will we be relentless? Will we really love? And when I say love, will we genuinely love and care for the eternities of those that we live and work and play alongside? Genuinely love them. Because if we do, will we not tell them the one thing in life that they need to hear more than anything else? And you know what? This is where we finish this morning. It's going to be a tough work. That's the point of verses 5 to 9. You see this journey throughout the book of Acts. The gospel is preached. People turn to Jesus. But there is always, always opposition. For you today, what will it look like? I doubt you're going to get chased out along Crendon by a hate mob that gets roused up from what you're saying. I doubt it in this day and age. I doubt it for the next few years that you're going to be thrown into prison like Paul in Philippi for standing up and nailing your colours to the mass and saying Jesus is everything. I doubt that will happen. It's happening across the globe. It might happen here one day. But for now, no, the opposition will come. It will come in different forms. It will be ever so subtle behind the scenes. It will be apathy. It will be a lack of acknowledgement. It will be little things trying to wear away the church and the body of believers. There will be so many different things. But know this opposition will become. It will be tough standing for Christ in the world. It will be tough. But is it worth it? Is it worth it? You ask Paul. After a night in prison and he saw the glint in the jailer's eyes and his whole household when he came to Christ... Paul, was it worth that night in prison in the stocks? Yeah, it's worth it. George Whitfield, was it worth it that day you got weed on from those lads in the tree when you were preaching open air? Was it worth it when by the end they were down on their knees in repentance? George, yes, it was worth it. Gaz, worth it? The amount of times Wellesley fobbed you off and said, no, not for me. Was it worth it? Yeah, of course it's worth it. Worth it to see friends in glory, rejoicing in Christ for all eternity in a world that will never end. Of course it's worth it, friends. But it begins here. 
It begins with me and you saying, I'm going to be intentional about this. I'm going to leave this place. I'm going to leave my comfortable life sometimes behind and I'm going to get out there and I'm going to share the one life-changing gospel message that needs to be shared with those I dearly love because I long to see them in heaven more than anything else in life. To be living for Jesus now and to be found in him on that final day. What a wonderful thing that is. But it starts here. Let's be a people that leave. Let's be a people that speak and let's be a people that love.